now there's this kind of push to normalize your menstrual cycle. The only problem is no one knows what's normal. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dalski. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. And Rudy, you are not actually co-hosting this episode. Do you care to share why? I have nothing to say on this topic other than when you brought this topic up to me, I knew the right people for, so in a way I really did, I truly acted as a producer on this one. When you really think about it, because I found you the, I mean, did I find the right people or did I find the right people? You did. And actually that's why I wanted you to be part of this intro. Who is my fabulous co-host and the guest? And since you were the one who put this together, can you introduce them? It's my wife. Dr. Catherine Medorin, who has a lot to speak on this topic. And it's a very close childhood friend of my wife, Dr. Katie Valentin, who is a very well-known doctor who actually delivered a lot of my friend's children. She's like kind of like a, a relative in a way, but just because she's so connected uh, to the friends and, and, and just very, very well-known LA doctor and a wonderful, wonderful person. And the topic is? You, I can't believe you're asking. Okay, you know what? It makes sense. So why <laughs> why would Rudy have nothing to say on this topic? And he's the like, but I know is, somebody. <laughs> is uh, PMS yes. and, and issues related to PMS and why it's not talked about as being a true, you know, kind of not a disability, but why is it not given the same credence that other medical issues are. Did I I describe that well? That's perfect. And you hooked me up with your rock star of a wife and a fantastic guest. I appreciate it so much. And I realized even as I was editing this, this is such a, a lovely conversation. It's just so open. It's vulnerable. Talking about PMS, talking about the lack of information, talking about the ways to treat it, talk about suffering, talk about pain. But most importantly, I guess I buried the lead there, is that this is a miraculous event that happens every single month. And so there is another way to shift that narrative and to look at it. Rudy, thank you so much. Okay. And now let's talk PMS. Absolutely. You might learn some new things. A lot of women women come to the doctor and they think I can see their ovaries when I do the pap smear. They don't even know where the ovaries are. I'm like, "Hmm, that's inside. I can't see that. (laughs) Yeah. So one of my students, one of my students just (laughs) said that she just learned that the ovaries were not attached, but it shoots out. Yes. Into, into thin air. And your tube suck up your egg and kind of push it on over into your uterus, but they are not attached to the whole system. You know, I honestly, I see that all the time, right? I'm in, I'm in the abdomen as a surgeon and I see that and I I still don't really understand how it happens. I'm like, they're not attached. How does it go? Because sometimes, sometimes they flop, they're this way. You know, it's not, you know, they show a little picture like this, you know, where the little pieces are going around the egg. But in reality, sometimes it's like that. I didn't know that. It's like a jellyfish. Is it like a jellyfish kind of or no? No, it isn't. It kind of does look like the tentacles at the end, but it's more like, oh, I guess you could say jellyfish, but the tubes are attached to everything. So it's kind of Mm -hmm. like an upside down pear with two arms hollow arms with fingers at the end. So that's what the uterus looks like. And the tubes don't make anything. 
<laughs> when people, when I take away tubes or cut or tie them, people think that, you know, they won't have as many hormones. They don't make anything. Your uterus doesn't make anything except for a baby. Doesn't make hormones. But I wanted to direct your talk. I know we're talking about PMS today. Yeah. I want to talk about yeah. so many of these things. So many. I, <laughs> I cannot help but think the more I've thought about this, the less I know, and the more I realize I have more questions because of this vacancy of information. And because of that vacancy, women go through pain and they just go through the pain without really even understanding what the pain is about or how to navigate it. And something that hit me was in my episode with Kate is that as a surgeon, you, you had mentioned that when you ask women about their previous history with surgeries, so many women will leave off that they had a C-section. So it's yeah. almost as though women's pain or whenever it has to do with reproduction, it just doesn't count. It just doesn't, they, they, women have internalized this as well. And so I guess I just want to learn about when, do you know, when did we start to have the language around PMS and then how was it handled? And then what are some things that we need to know about what is PMS? Ooh, so that is such an interesting question. So PMS, so historically, there's a lot we can talk about where the root word of hysterectomy came from was hysteric. So let's start there. But about a century after we started talking about the hysterics women might be having without calling it PMS, they called it premenstrual tension. And about the, around the 1930s, Dr. Frank, who was a gynecologist, described this premenstrual tension this um, cyclical anxiety and hypochondria that women will start to experience before their period. And when their menstrual period starts, when they start to bleed, that tension goes away magically. And it wasn't until the 1980s we started to use the term PMS. And it was kind of interesting how it all started. There were two murder cases in England in 1980 and 1981. Now I'm 46 years old. So I feel like this is not that long ago. So it always shocks me that this is when we started to talk about this. But these two women killed someone else. They committed murder. Their sentences were reduced and they were sort of acquitted of murder. And they recharacterized their murder as manslaughter instead because it was due to premenstrual syndrome. They were out of their minds. They couldn't help themselves. And it was more like an accident and not actual murder. So that happened. And so that came into the legal jargon. It set this precedent for this PMS thing being so powerful that it could cause women to commit murder. And around the same time in the 1980s, if you look at the movies we have, Nine to Five and Baby Boom, we saw that women were now starting to enter the workforce. When you look at all of the magazines and everything, there were articles about how to control your monthly monster, you know, managing all of the breast tenderness and bloating was in Cosmo and, and Vogue. And it became this whole thing because there was this thought that this was a disease. We can't be having this PMS in the workplace because it's causing us actual physical ailments. And there's something about that that makes us weaker. And so it was something everyone tried to stifle and change at the time. And we don't really think of it that way. Now we have kind of I don't know, Kate would agree with me in the medical field. I don't know if you see that we, we're like 50-50, I think, at least in, uh, when I went to medical school with women and men. So now there's this kind of push to normalize your menstrual cycle. The only problem yeah. is no one knows what's normal. 
Mm -hmm. So they just, we just have all these sensations. Our boobs hurt. You know, we feel like a little crampy and it happens every month. So we have, <laughs> right? Yeah. So we have a no, and nobody knows when it's going to happen. We just know it happens. And I've been married for 14 years now. And it took me a long time to realize that I was a monster and really difficult to live with right before my period. And I'm like, this happens every month that I want thinking about another life. And I mean, I knew I was experiencing some sort of, but it isn't until you have your period and you feel okay and you're in love again, that you know what it is, right? Because it's on a spectrum. That's mm -hmm. the other thing. So I think one thing that we need to sort of shed some light on is what are those symptoms? What is the premenstrual time? What is our menstrual cycle? And why do we feel the way we do at each phase? And it, I would so imagine I, it changes throughout one's life because the symptoms that I have now, I don't recall having them when I was a teenager. So yes. I yeah. have like, for, for example, right now for my PMS, I have severe emotional dips. Mm -hmm. I don't, if I had those when I was younger, I don't know. I don't remember because it was, I guess it was so long ago, <laughs> but I don't yeah. think that that was the symptom that, but it is now. So I'm just wondering if it, if it changes, like, I don't know, like you say, it happens uh, every yes. month, but we never get used to it. It does it's, change. It does it change. Does change. Yeah. It definitely change and it changes, but it, there it's multifactorial. There are the actual physical manifestations, which may or may not be the same. I think that it definitely changes, but then there's how we perceive these changes and how we sort of feel about it as a person. If you're a teenager who's 19 acting out, it's kind of expected, right? Mm -hmm. um, when you're an adolescent and you're moody, we expect to be moody. Now we're all professional women that have to come to work and have to deliver a level of care. Or, you know, if you're doing research or if you're teaching, you need to come and bring it every single time and be 110%. And on top of that, when you have a little person, a lot of women do experience like just this really big dip after they have a baby. Uh, part of it is because exhaustion. And the other part is you don't want to let this person down. Like if you have a migraine and you can't get out of bed and you're in college, that's one thing. But if you have a baby going mommy, mommy, and like trying to get you out of bed and you just can't move, that's it's like, you feel like a bad person. Like you feel like you're failing yourself and your family, but it also is more severe because I think that we're just in general, we just have a lot more on our plate and more expectations of our level of functioning. But some of the physiologic things that happen throughout the decade, definitely hormonal. Someone might say, I was able to lose weight very easily. And then all of a sudden, every decade, it just is harder and harder. That could be partially hormonal. That could be maybe because we're not moving as much in general. It could maybe because, you know, it just, we have more stress, but it's undeniable that there is definitely some changes when it comes to being able to shed those pounds. The other is breast tenderness and breast size. So the receptors change after you've breastfed. You also might experience bloating in a way that you never have before. I don't know if you notice your ovulation might hurt a little more, or you might notice that your bleeding is really heavy and maybe a little bit more efficient. So like the first two days might be a bloodbath, but you know, by day three, four, it tapers off. That happens when you've delivered a baby and your cervix was opened and you have more surface area on your uterus. So there are definitely changes that are physiologic. It's a really complicated thing, but 
there is a really strong correlation with having PMS once you become a mother versus before. Mm. I don't know if you've noticed that yourself. Um, I have. And that's one of the things why I wanted to, one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because I felt like I was experiencing this alone because the emotional dips were so severe that I finally, mm -hmm. when I mentioned it to somebody else, a friend, she said, I have the same thing. And then I felt better, but I didn't realize that, oh, this is a normal thing. And there's a part of me now I'm only one person, so I don't have any evidence or any data, but there's a part of me that's wondering, is the medical community addressing that. So it's as though like when somebody goes in for a pap smear or for the regular stuff, it's like, are we checking the body, but are we checking how the mental health is as well? And then what do like, what is the language that a patient should use for the doctor to understand? Or does the medical community really appreciate that aspect of PMS? Yes. I would say in my, I have to, it's in my wheelhouse. I do this maybe 40% of my day is talking about all sorts of hormonal changes. There are two things at play though. It's hard to talk about the hormonal changes in a silo without talking about neurotransmitter as well. We have our hormonal system, which is our estrogen, progesterone, and LH, FSH, and all the things that come from our pituitary gland and our ovaries. It's very complicated. Then we also have our neurotransmitters. So we have the norepinephrine, we also have dopamine. We also have serotonin, which plays a big part in feeling those lows. And our ability to handle our PMS and feel good during that time is diminished if we have less of the good neurotransmitter around. So a lot of my job is trying to distinguish how much of this is hormonal and how much of it is all of the hormones that our brain and our neurological system has output for. But so I, we are addressing it from many angles. I mean, Kate's a thyroid surgeon. So the thyroid can also recap havoc on, on how we're feeling at any particular time. And it tends to affect women more often. So that's another one, but we don't make it a psychological mood problem mm -hmm. when we're talking about the thyroid, even though you have the same sort of responses, the lows or the highs, depending on how much thyroid is out there, weight gain or weight loss. So many of the same things, but do we feel like, you know, oh, you're just moody and crazy today because your thyroid is off. We don't talk about it that way. Yeah, Whenever it happens to when it's a woman's body, it's, if it has to do with reproduction, it's just, I just think it's dismissed. I think that's a I, huge I, I think, problem. I think that though, there's this thing as physicians that we have to be able to do something about it. And I think definitely for surgery, it's like problem, fix it, problem, fix it. That's what we do. So this gets into a softer area where you know, a lot of people will come to the physician and then want an answer. And for me, a lot of times they're disappointed if I suggest something that's not surgery, maybe something harder. You know, a lot of people can have things manifest in a way that physical therapy is actually the real answer for them, not surgery. Do you find that, yeah, cause you're suggesting what you're talking about to figure out the hormonal balance and the neurotransmitters, the treatments we would have for that are pills, you know, antidepressants or birth control pills to control it. And I feel like a lot of women would say, Hey, I don't want you to just push a pill on me. It's like putting a bandaid on something. Do you get that feedback? Yes and no, but my approach is, is not that actually. I think that 
when I bring up the complicated interaction between the two, a lot of women come because they want to know what's wrong. Not necessarily, Mm -hmm. I want you to fix it right now. There are some women, yes, if they're having suicidal ideation, we need to fix it right then. But for most women, they just feel off. Uh, They'll explain like, you know, it's just, I'm not myself or I can't seem to dig myself out of this hole right before, or I can't get out of bed right before my period. And so I go into the whole discussion on why they feel that way. So why do we feel that way? I try to spin it and tell them, at least from the hormonal perspective, that our bodies can do something so powerful. We can make a human if you choose to. And because we can make a human, these hormones are really powerful. That's a powerful thing that we can do. So your period, first of all, they don't understand. It's split into two phases. Your follicular phase from when you have the first day of your period to when you ovulate and the luteal phase from when your egg has come out, then has died. And then all of this big ramp up to make a human. And then it just kind of goes away. So the whole system needs to restart right before your period. So you don't feel great. You were going to do this awesome thing and you weren't, you didn't get to, (laughs) right? And when you can't, like the whole, think about what it takes. It's literally, you said it yourself. Our ovaries look so far from the fallopian tube. How do things get to the uterus? It's literally a miracle to be able to have a baby. Like it is all the moving parts. If you really knew what they were, it's like, how did this ever come about? And here we are, but we don't get to do that every single month. So your progesterone was ready to feed a baby and then it plummets. Your estrogen was building up and building up and then it plummets. So everything just goes, you know, when you're trying to restart these cogs of the wheel, you want to get it up and running again, you need to power down. And I think that a lot of women don't give themselves the space for that. And so when they come in saying, I feel this way, I'm like, of course you do. So I explained to them, this is what progesterone does. Instead of not having control over this hormone, I give them the words and the sensations we have when our progesterone, which is a byproduct of ovulation, goes up. And what happens when you have progesterone around? It's a smooth muscle relaxant. Your gut slows down. So you feel bloated. Why is your gut slowing down? Well, how do we feel when we're pregnant? Want to vomit. We don't want to eat. We feel like you know, crap, your body then allows for with this progesterone, all of this reabsorption of your nutrients, because it's not moving. But we also feel like crap, feel like we're bloated and constipated, our breasts hurt, we may feel angry, that sensation that like, we're up to here, and want to scream and cry at the same time, that all comes with high progesterone and estrogen. And then the rug is pulled out from under, it's also fun. And then we have to kind of reset Um, and this sort of flushing of the lining and the drop in progesterone and the resetting actually feels pretty good, cathartic. Our guts are moving again. We're diuresing, meaning that we're peeing off all of this excess fluid that these hormones are having us maintain. Why? For our life to be given nutrients so that we can flood our placentas with more fluid, we hang on to it. But that's the reason. And I think that it's good enough for most women to know that that is supposed to be like that. So this um, gets back to Gwen's original. I love this issue that if, you know, a lot of what you're doing is just education. 
education and explaining. And if we all had more education and it was more open to talk about, it would prevent a lot of the feelings of inadequacy. And who's telling the narrative? Because you're describing this in a positive, miraculous way. Well, I think part of that is that all of our research leading up to this point has not included enough women talking about the breakdown of symptoms. It's all been about mood. So we have historically psychologized menstruation and your reproductive fluctuations that come in a cyclic matter and sort of made it more of a psychological mood problem. And many men, because they have wives or, you know, (laughs) may have their own bias. It can't blame them. They have their own bias. They just kind of use the word crazy a lot. You know, a lot of, I don't want to the culture was very different. There are lots of male physicians that do understand hormonal changes and respect them for what they are and for why they're there. But you're right. When you ask about, you know, what do we do? I think that that explanation already enough, and they come away saying, I'm okay. I don't need a pill. I think that a lot of doctors now don't have a lot of time. So it's really easy Mm -hmm. to knock out their menstrual cycle. But not every menstrual cycle needs to be knocked out. And then I think that we also say that to each other. Why are you still having a period? That's what some gynecologist will say to me. I kind of like my menstrual cycle. Yeah. Why are you still having a period? Just slap a marina on it. Then you don't have to bother with it. And that sounds appealing, doesn't it? For some women, it does. But that's her choice. They're not giving another choice. They don't know that it's there. I mean, Um, I just, I've heard the word hormones, 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 but I have never had it explained to me exactly what is going on in the body. The progesterone and the estrogen. I love that. Those are the two ones that we should all start with. Building. we should all know about that when you're 12, because that's the bigger problem. Every, all the little girls know what a period is, but they don't really know why they feel angry or why it all is mediated by their brain. Cut starts there. Your hypothalamus and your pituitary initiates everything. And so of course you're going to have some issues with feeling up to here and wanting to scream and cry. We still need more studies. And there's also the care for young girls. There are still parents with the idea that they do not want their daughters using tampons because that will take away their virginity. That's still like, yeah, that's still the thing. So even everything about taking care of that time of the month is just shrouded in secrecy and shame. Fortunately, I went to an all girls school. So that part was not shameful. It was no problem. If somebody needed a tampon to just toss one to them across the the room. Yeah, not, not a problem at all, but I've heard that that is still an issue. And I remember one of my friends growing up, her mom wouldn't let her use a tampon because that means that she would not be a virgin anymore. It's a social construct, that idea of virginity and hymen all in one. You can break your hymen doing the split. So yeah, no. And now a quick break to tell you about the Soul's Work podcast. It's a podcast that's having honest, open conversations about trauma, therapy, relationships, sex, and more. The Soul's Work podcast is the show about uncovering our authentic selves through doing both the light work and the shadow work. On the podcast, host Janice Ho shares about her own life experiences while offering judgment-free guidance on healing from trauma, reconnecting with our intuition, and showing up more authentically in relationships. The Soul's Work podcast also brings in research and guests, including me, for added perspectives. You can check out my episode, Sex and Love, Addressing the Intimacy Recession on the Soul's Work podcast, where we chat about intimacy, sexuality, and dating. 
To be honest, I felt nervous about getting a bit more personal on air than usual, but Janice creates a comfortable space of openness and I really enjoyed our conversation. I got to talk all about philosophy of sex and love. I think the Souls Work podcast is doing such great work. So if you're looking for a fresh, relevant, and honest show about the things we all struggle with in life, tune in to the Souls Work podcast, and you can check them out at thesoulsworkpodcast.com or listen on your favorite podcast player. And back to the show. I want to ask about pain because this is also kind of the psychology of it, but I really, really love my job. I almost have never called in sick for work. And I think it's just because I genuinely enjoy my job. But I remember one day calling in sick and I felt this incredible amount of guilt. And the reason was, was that I woke up that morning with such severe cramps and I thought, okay, I can just take a shower and I'll be fine. And I could barely stand and I had to lie down. And I felt this embarrassment for calling and saying that I was sick and I couldn't come in, even though that's the definition of sick. I couldn't stand. There was no way I could walk on campus. I had two classes. That's four hours of lecture. I couldn't do it. But if I had had any other kind of a pain other than was with menstrual cycle, I wouldn't have felt anything. Like if I said I had the flu, that would have been fine. I would have felt no guilt, but I felt this guilt because it had to do with cramps. And so I think this conversation is important, not just for women to understand, but also for employers that the way that the work life is structured is after a man's life. And just because the women have a different cycle, it doesn't mean that they can't be productive. It just means that it will look different. That's a big myth. So we all, you know that, Kate knows that this whole idea of having a reproductive cycle or changes in our, re- like being, making us weaker and that's just an excuse. Or I feel like, did that happen every single time you had a, had a period? Probably not. It was the one time. Now, what if you were a person that had a menstrual migraine? It's a migraine you could stay home that day. You may not have even associated it with menstruation. It is associated with some people during their menstrual time. Sometimes it's so bad that someone is throwing up from their migraine, but it's the same reason. They're right about to get their period, whether it's cramps or a migraine, you can't function that day because of a physical issue. And everyone's allowed to have one or two bad days in a month. Not, no, I not feel surgeons. like not surgeons. Not surgeons. <laughs> Except for if you're a surgeon on call, that is true. Not, not even OBGYN not on call. either. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I mean, you know, for me, I think, and this does happen in your 40s too, part of it changing. I was somebody who always got migraines throughout my 30s with my menstrual period. And now I get debilitating pain. I mean, debilitating. Yeah. Oh, it's um, I passed out. And that that obviously can't happen with my job. job. I I found ways to manage it. You know, the props and worked really well, but now for the first time in my life, I'm on pills. Yeah. I tried taking, I tried going off of it. I really fought it. I didn't want them. And then, um, I went on them and it was all gone and I went off of them for a few months and it took three cycles and I thought, Oh, I can do this. And the third cycle came raging back and I was like, no, no. And that's, that's part of the, I think that's perimenopause, right? I've had, you know, imaging to make sure it wasn't something else. Well, I think the first thing that both of you, well, first of all, the guilt piece should just never come into play. I think that with the education of knowing the whys, it helps. And you have to think of it as not a social thing. It's not a psychologic thing. You are experiencing something that is painful and it's you're allowed to, and you can take a day for that pain, whatever it is, and whoever you are. 
I think that that we all need to hold space for everyone experiencing that. The other thing is we know it's temporary. If all of the other days of the week, yeah. all of the other days you're fine, who cares if you have one or two days of cramps? Let it go. I don't even remember what happened last month, right? <laughs> um, so I feel like we need to support each other in the workforce. Men and women need to be able to do that for a man who has maybe a headache as well, or is something is hurting or their prostate hurts. I feel like we Americans are really, we just hold that work ethic on a pedestal and we don't allow for physical pain or for us to, you know, just experience, um, like if we have to take care of ourselves, we feel bad, right? So we should be allowed to practice self-care when we need it. But it also is totally temporary today. Now, it depends on what you do. I really feel that. I, it's hard in my line of work too. We don't give each other as much of a pass. I mean, I mindfully set up my practice and created a culture where we support each other. So if someone is too sleepy to go in because we've been up for 36 hours, we say, that's fine. Just stay home. Like it's unsafe. If someone has a migraine headache and they can't, we should be in a space where we can say, and Kate, I'm telling you this because surgeons are a different breed to say, you know what? I just need you to cover me for this because I can't tomorrow I'll be better. But like right now, or my pain is really bad. I need someone to, it just isn't safe for me to continue to do this. If it's a one-off that's understandable, but I feel like if it's coming cyclical for more than three cycles, you got to go to your OBGYN. I mean, I think that that is, you know, the first thing that we say in medicine is to ease suffering. That's too much suffering. So whatever that is, you know, you're taking naproxen. Oh, well, now I'm on, now I'm back on the oral contraceptive pills. Oh yeah. And I'm yeah. not, I barely get a period. And then there's nothing, there's no pain. And there's a okay. shadow. There's a hint does, of it. Like I would that, get the prodrome and that's it. Does that enhance your life? Does it bring you peace? Does it, yeah. Um, help you. Yes. Cause like if we could just be home and make babies and just tend to our powerful cycle, <laughs> it's like we have to recharacterize it. That's the one thing, but now we have responsibilities. We have children, we have jobs. And there are some jobs where yes, there is no room when you're caring for others to just, you know, not show up. And if that's happening too often, you're letting down your partners and all of that. So I totally understand that. And that option is totally, it's there for you. It is not an unhealthy option. It's okay to, you have that option for a reason. When the pain becomes so debilitating, you cannot complete your daily, you can't function during that time. Then you need to do something about it. Whether it is stay home or take a pill. Yeah. Totally understandable. There was a study that was released that PMS can be as painful as a heart attack or can have the same magnitude of pain. And then there was this content creator on TikTok. I wish I could credit her, but I can't, but it was so funny how she responded to that study. She said, there's two different responses. The women who are thinking, I could do a heart attack. Oh, a heart attack must not be that bad. And then all of the men who are responding, thinking that is what you do every month. So right. I think even in the language you're talking about, it said, this is suffering. This is pain. And we are walking around almost as though like still doing everything, pretending as though we don't really have it and just pushing through that pain. Yeah. Yeah, we are. I don't think we need to. What is, you said that you talk about PMS. What, what is something that has come up or something that's come up over and over again, where you have felt passionate about talking about what is PMS? 
Well, like I said before, I feel like this need to, or this feeling that we have when we don't feel ourselves, that there's something wrong with us that we need to fix. I keep hearing this. I have a hormone imbalance, Dr. Valentine. I want to kill someone right before my period. I have a hormone imbalance. I need something to be fixed. Whatever it is, just fix it. And first of all, the education and then the options. I think that everybody, you, 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 you both have two options and those are perfectly acceptable. One is I'm going to stay home and take care of myself. The other is I can't do this every month. I need to take a pill. I feel like people don't talk enough about, you know, pelvic floor physical therapy. Maybe there's something else going on. (laughs) Incorporating more hydration, if that's the problem. All of the alternative things that we can do, acupuncture, evening primrose for our breath. I don't think people realize that that can help with that. Taking, there's a ton of now new studies out that, um, have studied herbal medication in dosages over time in women. Swedish pollen flower extract is another one that we were looking at. So things that aren't replacing a hormone or knocking out our cycle, but instead of adding supplements to help our body function better, which is what herbal medicine medicine can do for us. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people don't know that there are those options. So I think that like, again, it comes down to education and knowing making your choice yourself. Like this is not acceptable to me. I don't think I would want to go all the way to a hysterectomy and I want to do the minimum amount possible, or I just need something to work today. So like put an IUD in me and let's be done. You just need to know what your choices are so you can choose. Um, A lot of women don't know that they have them. What are some do's and don'ts other than medicine and homeopathic stuff? What is something that let's say maybe would be a good idea to avoid during the PMS maybe the men in your life. No, I mean, like, what would be, is oh, there no, no. something that like, is- like maybe this is not the best time for Chipotle or for that donut or for that caffeine. Like, are there other things that, <laughs> that would, um, or alcohol, like, are there things that will make PMS worse? Yes. Toxic interactions. You're right. Oh. <laughs> not, that we're avoiding, not that we're avoiding the men in our lives, but like to, it comes every month. I mean, I used to put this in Mark's calendar when I was going to have my cycle because I was working so hard. My kids were two and three. I mean, I was stretched thin. And so I had very little left before. And I mean, I would never, ever, ever bring up the D word before I like really was in it with the kids and I, and it wasn't about him because it would be over right when I got my period cycle. So if you know, you're going to be judgy, if you know that you're going to have a fight, you may want to just say, I'm going to go and just read a book today or schedule it in. Just say, I need me time. Or you're going to go be with your girls because we actually do crave being with other women right before our period. You really monitor your, I'm a big self monitor having a background in sight. So like, that's kind of one of the things that I, I notice, and everyone will notice something different about what fills their cup right before the period. But in general, avoid salt, avoid too many carbs, add in more exercise, even if it's for a 30 minute walk a day, if you're not doing that, you should do that right before the week before, you know, getting enough sleep work does wonders for migraines menstrual migraines. So if you're getting enough sleep, that really helps in staying hydrated. You might want to up just, you know, in terms of like, if you're doing anything meditative or something for yourself, like just like have your day of beauty right before your period. Cause we do need that. Cause then we can at least know we just checked that box that we did something for ourselves. Just feeling like kind of a hamster on a wheel and then having your PMS time makes everything worse. So if you're able to do those things, I think that it really helps. 
believe it or not, placebos have been shown to help PMS. Nobody has figured out why this is a phenomenon, but if you are given a pill and you're told this helps with your mood right before PMS, people will subjectively say their symptoms are better. It's so interesting that that is, it's, it's a powerful thing. I don't know why it works, but it does. There are lots of things and tools that, that are out there, but I feel like the big ones, if I could narrow it down, sleep, exercise, hydration, and minimize salt and sugar right? When we want it the most, right? (laughs) (laughs) My tell is when I'm driving, I start honking at everybody on the freeway. (laughs) Everybody is in my way. You're not alone. And I have to realize, oh, wait, Mm -hmm. I'm the one that's different. It's the same freeway. It's the same, probably the same people on the road that I drive with every day, but all of a sudden everyone is in my way. Yes. I'm usually a very, I'm usually a very level person. And when I find that I'm fantasizing about picking fights with people, (laughs) I I, I can step back and think, and I'm like, wait, why am I fantasizing angry interactions? And I thought, oh, I'm about to get my period. Yeah. And then it all resets. So you're like, like these people again. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Love this idea of like this miracle thing. Cause I'm thinking, I guess, Kate, you must be close to, well, I don't know how close you are to talking about period, but how like even, you know, our moms described it to us and then thinking of how we'd want to pass that on to our daughters to describe yeah. it as this exciting oh. thing that's happening. Um, oh, period yeah. party, period yeah, party. Yeah. For my daughter, I mean, she's aware of it. She knows when I have my period and there's no, there's no privacy in my life. They barge into the bathroom <laughs> and she's obsessed with blood. So if she sees it, she's like, what's happening? You know? <laughs> so I've always explained to her what it is. And I told her it'd be her turn to sometimes because she gets kind of wacky about blood and she's only six. So mm-hmm. I've got some time, but I've already got my idea for what to present her with. I think the most life-changing thing, and I do think women talk more about menstrual periods now and, and more openly too. Oh yeah. But the combination of like thanks and a cup, yes. life-changing. Yes. I, I'm I not bringing yes. tampons to my I don't get the cup. All. What is that? Oh, I don't get it. I, so I've seen a picture of it, but I'm still not clear as to oh, what is the it's cup? A, it's a silicone. <laughs> it's literally a silicone. It looks like a cone. Yeah. It's tiny. They're two different sizes. And what you do is you kind of squish it like a taco and you insert it in with the open side toward your cervix, which is the opening of your womb. And it just collects your blood all day and you just wash it out at the end of the day. It's so amazing. Why is that better than it's a amazing. tampon? It doesn't leave. You don't have to change it as much. It's totally clean. There's no, clean. there's no drainage. There's no smell. There's no sweat. It's like you it's almost like you don't have your period at all. Yeah. So then, yeah, you could just change it in the shower twice a day. It's yeah. amazing. There's a learning just, curve. It's not yeah, easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I was thinking, I remember learning how to do it. Tamp- tampons are actually kind of scary too. And the way in which my friends and I were trying to figure it out, because you've got the instructions that, I mean, they don't really make any sense when you're so young. And what we did was it was like four of us girls. We all go into the bathroom. Three of us jump into the tub and close the shower curtain and read the instructions for the other person on the other side. And did you get it in? How do you get it in? But that's the way in which I learned how to use a tampon. Um, It wasn't any other kind of, it wasn't your mom. (laughs) <laughs> no. So i almost feel like that kid again, when it came to the, when you, when I've seen the images of the cup and I'm just like, what the hell is this? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. It's well, not easy. The, once you learn it, it's easy. Definitely, first, uh-uh. 
You okay, what about good. the Thinks panties? What is that? So good. Oh, really? so good. That feels weird. So you're just wearing this underwear that also just yes. collects it and but, it's fine. Yes. And, yes. yes. How do you, you want to like you in the washer? But like in with other washer. clothes? Well, like yes. if, if you're using it as a backup for something else, then there's really that not dirty. that much in it. It's more like a panty liner without having to deal oh, with okay. the panty liner. But if you're just using the things and it's a lot and you're supposed to rinse it out first yeah, before it, throwing it can in the be, If you're heavy flow, you might want to not just do that. I mean, if you want it to feel cleaner and it won't be like an overnight underwear, it's like you've got to take it off at the end of the day and mm-hmm. wash it. But now they have a ton of them for young girls. So they have things and they have things for everyone at Target and they have a bunch of other like at Pink. Victoria's mm-hmm. Secret Pink has the sizes for the younger mm-hmm. girls. It's game. It's a game changer for like all of my athletic adolescents that they can wear like a little underwear and not have to worry about leaking at school. It's wonderful. And a good way to, I think, present this to young girls that are, well, the average age of uh, menarche is about 11. Average age of puberty is nine. So your girls will probably start really getting interested in it around nine years old. But a good way to present it, I thought what I did with my kids so they could really understand it because they found my pad. And they said to me, mommy, why are you wearing diapers? (laughs) I'm like, these aren't diapers. And they're like, then what are they? And I said, oh, they're egg catchers. So Mm. mommy has Mm. an egg every month that needs to come out if I don't use it. So it comes out and I have to have these on to catch them. Sometimes there's blood, but you know, that's kind of how it gets pushed out. And I didn't need that egg that month. And so it goes in the trash. And so they understood it from that perspective when they were six or seven. Now it's gotten a little more complicated, but I think that's a good way to present it to young children. So they don't tell people that you pee your pants all the time or you have a diaper on, Uh, but they also, they also have these really cool period kits now for girls. Like they really made it cute and fun for young girls and something that they could be proud of. Um, And a lot of my girlfriends now who are having period parties actually have invited me to come talk about the period. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of cool. Like they all get like a little, instead of like, they get a little take home pouch (laughs) with like some undies and all those panty liners, like just so that they could anticipate this time in their lives, which is so exciting. So I feel like it's changed. I don't know. You're obviously like my mom never told me anything, which is why I became a gynecologist. Um, but, you know, having to learn how to put a tampon in, in a bathroom with friends, like yeah, that's how I did for it. that. Yeah. There's a reason for that. We just couldn't ask our parents. Yeah. That's where I'm thinking so much of my information from when I was pregnant to just all sorts of things. It was through friends. It wasn't through my mom. It wasn't even really through school. And I'm noticing this now at the university level for my class philosophy of sex and love. I have 20 year olds who are asking me questions. I realize, wow, the questions that they're having is making me recognize that there is really this lack of information about how the body works. And we're talking about PMS, but about how pleasure works or how pleasure. sex is supposed to Pleasure's feel. a big one. Yeah. That you're supposed yeah. to be, the sex should be an enjoyable thing, but we leave so many things off. Like the clitoris is left off the map when it comes to, which I'm guessing a man drew the map and that's why I couldn't find it, but that it's not. <laughs> is it now though? Is it still left off? Honestly, I don't know. I asked my students if in any of their sex ed, if there was a discussion of the clitoris and no. And I think the reason is because sex ed is still taught it's not talking about sex. It's just talking about a fertilized egg. 
That's it. Yeah. A reproduction. Yeah. And so that's why if you introduce the clitoris, then you've introduced, you've changed the narrative of the purpose of sex from reproduction to pleasure. To pleasure. And I think God forbid. too many people. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I yeah. think it's probably part of it. Literally God forbid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't have much hope for that changing in our culture. No, especially or the Catholic school, school that my kids. Yeah. But people yeah. are suffering as a result of that because what I've learned is right. that, that there are a lot of young women And even women who are older who have not experienced an orgasm or when they're younger, they're just kind of tolerating, the girls are tolerating it because, and this is important for boys as well, for a heterosexual relationship, that sex is not something that's done to the woman, that her body is actually created to be active and a participant and to enjoy this. But the woman's body is taught as passive and dirty and something that's just has to be suffered through. And I love the way that you're talking about changing the narrative that this is a miracle. This is a power thing. This is an extraordinary thing. And then it should be celebrated and not embarrassed about, but it's like, look at what my body gets to do. Look at what my body is. Um, it's a self-cleaning oven every single month and it works. Yeah. When young women are exploring their own bodies when they're younger with self-stimulation. And I, so instead of this narrative where you're saying, okay, well, you shouldn't be doing that or that's private and like shutting it down. I think that if you're bold enough to talk to your daughters about if you're going to be intimate with someone, it has to be for you first. And if it's going to be for you first, you need to know how to tell someone to touch you so that you get something out of it. And you should always reiterate, okay, if you're going to have sex, that's fine, but it should be for you first, because it can't be just you trying to impress or like pleasure the man. It just can't be, you know, and they want to, little boys, they're not taught that that's something that they need to learn to do Mm -hmm. either. Everybody is lost. So I'm glad you exist. <laughs> oh, thanks. I'm worried. Every time I give a lecture, I'm thinking, oh God, I can't believe, I, I don't know. I'm like nobody, <laughs> nobody would record this, but then they can, of course I go on a yeah. podcast and say everything out loud, but I've just, I've been trying to think of some sort of a solution because I don't blame parents for feeling awkward about the conversation. I understand that sex ed teachers are limited by school boards and by parents who don't want to pay tax dollars to have their children learn about things that they don't want to. So I was thinking there has to be some other way. And my thing is the medical community, because now I'm thinking when I was 14, when I was 15, or I'm seeing a doctor or my first pap smear, that maybe that could be another avenue for teaching young women about how their body works. And it is also a safety issue because young women are less likely to be in positions where they are in pain or uncomfortable in a sexual way. If they understand that that's not how their body's supposed to feel, but if it's not taught ever, if it's never mentioned, then we don't understand. And I feel the same way about PMS that if we're not having a conversation about this is the way in which the body works, this is what it operates. These are some do's and don'ts. This is normal. This isn't normal. We just need to even have the language to be able to ask people about what's going on. Agreed. Oh, well, this was lovely. Kate, do you have any other? Okay. Something I would love to know because your background is in medicine. You're a surgeon. What did you learn from this? Oh yeah. I actually did learn some stuff. I know about the two phases of the menstrual cycle, but it's not something that I think about all the time. And I don't even think as you were speaking, Katie, I don't even think that I had kind of put two and two together that maybe some of my bad symptoms are actually before the menstrual cycle starts or where it is exactly in it. And I never, I didn't think about the hormone dropping in the progesterone and how maybe 
Maybe I could do something about that if I'm having GI symptoms, which I do a lot of GI symptoms. Maybe I should, you know, up my fiber beforehand or do something ahead of time. Or your magnesium is great. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good right before your period because it actually is a motility agent as you know. So right. And maybe that's part of my problem. Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, there's still a lot to learn, even as a physician. And yeah, when I said I started taking naproxen at one point, I was 40 and a physician before I understood that taking um, an NSAID, which is the class of drugs that ibuprofen or Aleve, naproxen are specifically works for periods because of the prostaglandins. Yes. And I just (laughs) gone, you know, always like, Oh, I don't need, I don't need the Advil for pain and it can cut bleeding by 40%. Oh yeah. High dose, 800 milligrams of Uh of ibuprofen can cut your bleeding at high dose. It stabilizes clot. Yep. That's true. Yeah. So I think there's a lot for everybody to learn. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, this is yes, something come, people don't know about. And pelvic floor PT. I mean, I'm not going to oh, hijack yeah. this, but if you want to no, do no, something no. about hemorrhoids, <laughs> we I can send, do one on hemorrhoids. I send everyone for pelvic Everybody. floor PT mm-hmm, after they have a baby. Oh, uh, I, I have that. a hard time convincing people because uh, a lot of times it's older women usually, Mm -hmm. but the young ones are equally divided between male and female who really need pelvic floor PT. They'll come for hemorrhoids. That's not their problem. It's really hard to convince, you know, a 23 year old guy that he needs to go to a place called women's advantage physical therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Origins Origins has pelvic floor PT without the wording. (laughs) It used to be called baby PT. So good. They changed it. Yeah. But I do think um, it's great. Also for pelvic this dysfunct- like sexual dysfunction, all the things. It's a really good um, adjunct to There's so much. the rest of it. And yeah. some of it is for that specifically. Also, I think there is a, a mind-body connection mm-hmm. for some. I mean, yeah. it's different for the physiology after giving birth. That's different. That's not what I'm talking about. But um, no, there is definitely like what we were talking about with we were talking about sexual health and sexual yeah, dysfunction and pain. and pain and all of that. When you talk about a woman knowing what hurts and what doesn't hurt and how to pleasure themselves, how to have an orgasm, how they need to be touched to feel good. Remember what we're protecting. So you're protecting your reproductive organs. Your vagina is the entrance. So like if you hurt it, it remembers. You just need to have one bad interaction, psychologically traumatic or not, it remembers. And it closes up and it does all sorts of funny things that we all need to go to pelvic PT for later. But it happens in the teen years sometimes. Just one interaction, that neural pathway is established. And wow. it's hard to, it's really hard that when when Kate was talking about the psycho um, and physical connection, there is a big one. We have a lot of nerves down there. You hurt something in your vagina, that neural pathway, it's robust. So that has to all be unlearned. And I get that every day. And women are in tears from one bad sexual encounter. It doesn't even have to be rape. It just hurts. And once you hurt it down there, it's hard to get it back to the point where it can relax enough, where you can penetrate without pain, all those things. So I really, um, there's so much, there's so much to talk about. That's a whole nother. That's that's so good. That's it. I mean, I didn't didn't even know that. I mean, that's making me think of, 
I mean, when when you're saying that, I'm just thinking about the the ramifications, like how seriously it needs to be taken. How it just interferes with the quality of life, and we're so hush hush about women's health and sexual pleasure and all that stuff, but it's interfering with the joy of that part of our life. That's it's it's important. It's part of what makes life good. It's part of getting a good night's sleep. It's part of communication of of really being in love, of being vulnerable, of, you know, it's a great way to start your day. And the idea of um somebody being traumatized so much and then not really understanding the severity of that, that's I'm glad you mentioned that. That just yeah. kind of crushes me that we're not really, I don't think we're really taking as a society as seriously. Um, it's very important and it, and it affects women for their entire lives. And there's something about that that affects how we view ourselves in terms of how attractive we are and our self-worth. It's an interesting thing, our sexuality. If you don't feel good about that, you think you're broken. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting, well, that's, I'm telling you, it's a long discussion. I'd love to have it someday, but there's a lot with the pelvic plexus, all the nerves that innervate that area. There's a plexus, as Kate knows, that surrounds your rectum, your vagina, your bladder. There's a reason why women have some stress down there, or they're constantly complaining of something, but we keep culturing it and checking for UTIs, everything negative, but something got hurt and it's now broken for a little bit. So I feel like that's a lot of women are suffering silently with all those issues. Yeah. Yeah. And it starts with that, not finding pleasure with those early sexual interactions. It sets the tone. Mm, I'm so so glad. There's there's a woman by the name of Peggy Ornstein, who's done a lot of, she's a journalist and she's done work on interviewing young people about their sexual experiences. And she gave a Ted talk and she was talking about how girls talk about their first time having sex is it it's something to like get over like the women that young women view their first sexual experience as something that's to be gotten over and that that narrative needs to change and what if we even redefined virginity as when you first orgasm as opposed to penetration penetration yeah and i I had never even thought about redefining virginity in that way. And I'm, I bet there's women in their fifties, which would classify them as virgins at that point. Like, I think that if we were starting to define virginity in a different way or what sexual adulthood meant, as opposed to something that you're just want to get out of the way and you're traumatized over it, but it's some sort of a positive thing, that positive I experience. I love that. Like yeah. until you've had an orgasm, you haven't had sex yet. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a goal. It's like, you haven't done it yet. Until you have an orgasm. That's wonderful. But it's also people don't have that until thirties. Yeah, yeah, it's like the way that, you know, women talk about virginity. It, it still just seems like it's something that's taken. It's it's just yes, such a negative or thing. You, yes, that we taken from you. Yeah. You gave it. It's like the sacred, oh God. Yeah, well, it's, we talk I'm, about the woman's body as object, I think. Like sex is yes. something that's done to her. And I think even with the PMS stuff, that's what I was interested in is why is this very real pain kind of relegated to a joke in culture. And I think it could really impact the workplace if we were taking seriously that women have a cycle instead of looking at women as a liability, because men are crazy. They do crazy shit all the time. They jump out of planes. They do, they race cars. You're like, they're constantly putting their life in danger. So I don't think that having men means you've got some sort of a guarantee of functionality. (laughs) So to treat women as other liability because of they can have babies or they menstruate, it just seems totally bizarre to me. It's like, we've all got our thing. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Katie, thank you so much. And Kate, thank you for co-hosting and, you know, tell Rudy that, uh, this all went well. Yeah. This wouldn't, have, <laughs> this wouldn't have been for him. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> we would have been too distracted by Rudy's hair. We would have, um, <laughs> he does have good hair. He does. He does. Yes. <laughs> Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dolsky and Rudy Salo. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. If you'd like to get in touch or sponsor a show, you can contact us at goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, goodisinthedetailspod. And if you'd like to support the show, get extra content, or join our book club, you can check us out at patreon.com slash goodisinthedetails, and I'll link that in the show notes. Special thanks to Dr. Kate Madoran for co-hosting this episode. Until next time, bye.